Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Bienvenidos, familia. Welcome to Hello Latino. It's your girl, Dalis Jasmine. It is still Hispanic Latino Heritage Month, y'all. And I hope you're taking this time to learn about each other, celebrate each other, and tell the world quién somos. Today, you're going to meet and hear from Alma Zaragoza, a Mexican-American activist, scholar, and podcast host helping women everywhere claim their inner chingona, which is a term for badass women. In her book, Chingona, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing Injustice, is coming out November 1st. She shares a myriad of stories about channeling her own inner chingona and speaking out against oppressive systems. As Latina women, I hope we continue to preserve our energy to thrive and heal and speak up about quien somos and make space for more of us. Let's get into it. Lista! <laughs> girlfriend i have so many questions for you osa i want to learn i want to learn all about alma i want to hear all the chisme so estas lista are you ready yes i'm ready i'm ready (laughs) we're gonna start we're gonna start with the first question i feel like i already know the answer to it um okay but how do you identify and why and the reason i'm saying i know what you're gonna say is because your book is called chingona and there's we'll talk (laughs) about that later but i'm like she's gonna identify as chingona 100 (laughs) percent yes first and foremost right chingona land all right (laughs) no but tell us how you identify and why yeah, I mean, yes, obviously chingona. I'm definitely oh, chingona. <laughs> That's obs. Um, the I think that the other thing is, uh, you know, just in terms of my background and where my parents are from, and growing up in Mexico, it's I, I realize that it makes me very different than some of the folks that identify as Chicano from the LA community, which is where I'm from. Mm. So I actually don't identify as Chicana, although I guess technically I am. I mean, and I'm all about the Chicano movement. I was like, yes, you know, like I I respect all of that. But I grew up in Mexico, so I feel more like I identify as a Mexicana, a Me- mm. Mexicana-Americana, because I feel like um, all of the quotes and all of the like different... Um, cultural markers like for me it's it's all from Univision Televisión like I don't I don't <laughs> know <laughs> any of the 80s. <laughs> exactly like I don't know any of this other stuff that like um you know I think Mexican Americans grew up with and so I don't know I, I, I I'm all of it but I I definitely identified as Mexican American that's my yeah you know it's funny because you're saying Mexican American and the first thing that came to my mind was Cheech and Chong <laughs> <laughs> see but they're chicanos it's different they're chicano. but, okay yeah can you're you, right. some more yeah can, can you explain a little bit for those like i'm honduran yeah. and i feel like i know what chicano culture is because i grew up in san mm-hmm. diego or chicano park like i grew up around yes. a lot of mexican-american culture 
Talk to us about the difference of being Chicano or what the Chicano community is versus you're saying you identify as Mexican and there are differences. Can you explain what those differences are? I mean, culturally is mostly the difference, I think, in how I grew up. So in my home, um, you know, like I said, I I grew up in Acapulco, Mexico with my grandma um, for a few years. And so I went to school there. Um, I learned, you know, Spanish and um, all of the things just in, you know, surviving there. And then when I moved here, when I was about eight years old, um, even when I would go home, everything was like Spanish syndicated television, Spanish syndicated, like everything, you know. So um, there was like this really big um, bias against Chicano movement from my family because there was this idea that they were cholos (laughs) and that they were like of that life, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so they were more like, you're, that's not what you are. And maybe that's why I kind of, it stuck with me. So it's a little bit of a bias, but also like, it's a different life. Like for me growing up as a child of immigrants, I got more of that, like, you know, um, you have to study, you have to like you know, do better and, you know, really, um, todos los sacrificios que tu- tuvimos nosotros, tú tienes que superar and like be that next, you know, um, person to take us to some, something different or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, um, I didn't, and because I continue to go back to Mexico every year and hang out with my cousins. And to this day, I still have a lot of family in Mexico. And I, um, you know, I went with a cousin recently to Hawaii with her. And, you know, it's just much more um, of that kind of experience than like, having an experience where, um, you know, like, like, from what I know from Chicano, uh, you know, culture is like, you know, like low riders and, <laughs> and zoot suits. <laughs> and zoot suits. Like I wasn't I don't know any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Thank you for painting that picture because I think it's it's interesting because I feel like there was a moment, I'll tell you about this. Um, there was a moment in college where I was, and I tell this story often, but I was a part of a board of, of directors. I was in student government because I was that nerd. And <laughs> yes, the nerds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and someone who was on, there was like three other Latinos on the board with me and they were all Mexican, Mexican-American. Okay. And um, I was the only Hondureña, which I felt like I had to educate a lot of people on like what Honduran culture was because, you know, we're not we're not out there. Um, yeah. And I remember there was a moment when we were talking about having an undocumented center, which is so it's so fire an, an undocumented slash Latino center. And the goal of it was to help Latinos like superar, right, be in college and be able to achieve their dreams or achieve whatever they're trying to do in college and kind of be that guide. I loved it. I was all for it until they said they wanted to call the center Chicanex Undocumented Center. And I was like, "Uh, (laughs) hold on. I was like, that's excluding a lot of Latinos that don't identify as Chicano. (laughs) And girl, I got heat because of it. They're like, no, well, Chicano just means anyone who's born in the U.S. And I'm like, that's uh, Mexican. But like, <laughs> no. Um, and it was a moment for me to educate them. Like, I'm Honduran and I don't identify as Chicana. And I and I felt like it was always a Mexican culture thing. And I feel like that I can't even identify like that. That's not my culture. Right. And yeah. 
it was me versus three Latinos. And for me, it felt kind of like I'm going against my Latinos and like, it made it, you know, it was this <laughs> oh, weird moment. Man, not your own people. <laughs> I know. And I was so young. I mean, I was Aww. like, I was probably like 20, 21 at this age. And it was a moment for me where I was learning about these differences and how people view Latinos and how our own community views Latinos. Yes. Right. And so yeah. I love that educational piece. So I had to put you on the spot, but <laughs> I want to talk about Acapulco growing up with your grandma yes. and your immigration story. Like talk about what it was like to grow up in Acapulco, which I imagine is beautiful, but you're like, mm. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. It's a very complicated space now. I think after the 80s, there was a lot of um, narco activity in the region, and it just got really bad and dangerous. Mm. And so then now it has that stigma, which I'm cool with, because I'm like, yeah, I think that... Um, it's um, I could do without all these like people visiting here. <laughs> right, right. My guests are so full <laughs> all the time, and I'm just like, get out of here, you know? But Right. Um, but yeah, I actually grew up very close to El Centro de Acapulco. Um, I was actually born in, in L.A., though, just FYI. I was born in L.A. and Lincoln oh, wow. Heights. Um, very close to where I live now. It's like five-minute drive from where I live now. Wow. I live uh, in Boyle Heights now, uh, which is also like, all, this is all the epicenter of like the Chicano movement in LA. I was just so. going to say, I'm like, <laughs> I, I've heard of Boyle Heights. There's a whole show on it. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is. So, um you know, I love it here. Um, but like I said, like I was one years old when I left to or when I was, you know, in in Acapulco and grew up there until I was about eight. So I sorry, four. I was four years old. Um, so I only remember Acapulco as a child. I don't have memories oh, wow. of like, you know, the parks around here even though one of my tias just told me that i used to love this one park that is like now closed down it doesn't even have a pool anymore and that i used to like splash around in there as a little baby and i was like what <laughs> so cute um i know but that's literally the only memory that i've heard of about me in here as a wow. child so everything i remember is from acapulco it's very tropical rainforesty kind of um weather um I grew up, like I said, very close to El Centro, but we were up in a hill. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up there, we had no, um, we had dirt floors. So we didn't have cemented wow. floors. Um, I had some tias, uh, you know, with and cousins that literally lived in like adobe style, like um, shacks. So basically like they just carved out a hole on the side of a mountain and like mm. created their own little like space wow um very very like in lots of poverty you know um it was very hard i imagine that that's why my tias and my mom all decided to immigrate to the u.s because it was just very hard for them to even get jobs um at that right. time um and i feel like i could get into that as to like why some political moves and like that happened yeah. in that time made mm. that possible made that happen and it's actually um, the fault of a lot of like big, um, big company, big uh, organizations or big countries like the U.S. and just getting into all the um, becoming very harsh in the ways that they were doing some of the transferring of like goods and like all the laws around that. But anyway, that's a whole other we'll talk about it. <laughs> category that I don't know if we have time for right now. 
But yeah, it was beautiful. Like I remember like climbing up to our techo, which was, you know, made of cement and I would kick it up there and I would have a view of all the Acapulco Bay. And I felt like I was very rich growing up. Like I remember thinking like, Mm. dang, like this, this is like, I never, I mean, I don't think I had the category for it, but I do remember that when I came to LA, I was like, how is this better? Like this, I'm poor now. (laughs) Because I didn't have like a good experience uh, when I came to LA in terms of just what we had access to. Like I remember having access to like, you know, all the playas and like ocean view. And I could just pick out mangoes from my mango tree and just have some Mm. with some sal and and chile limon and just living my best life, you know? And maybe part of that is because it was, you know, as a child, you're much more present with your environment than oh, as yeah. we grow, right? So mm-hmm. I'm sure that has a little bit to do with it. Yeah. But still. Before you know, the phones, I, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So when I moved here, uh, it was a shock. It was like very, like, I was very confused at that time in the, like, what was it, like mid-80s or like later 80s. And how old were you at this of, time? I was almost eight. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I, and we moved into South Central. In the, mid, oh, in the late 80s. Yeah. <laughs> so, so stuff has become a what? <laughs> it was basically a war zone. That's what it was. It was just like so much gang activity at that time. So much like black, brown, um, beef. Um, it was just, it was a lot. And mm. I remember just within days of being here, like there being a drive-by shooting by my school, like it was there was a lot of like very intense stuff going on and that's why i always i'm like i never saw like how is this better again like why are we here right. like i always had this like weird disconnected feeling about the choices that were being made by adults around me mm. oh my god <laughs> and you had no control you had no idea what was going on yeah mm. exactly mm. so i'm like let's talk about that trauma <laughs> girl that's my whole book i had to write a book to process my trauma i have so much trauma when Um, did you start to process it like you're eight years old like i i mean even when i talk about me at eight years old growing up in the hood like you don't realize you're growing up in the hood but you did you kind of knew the difference of like acapulco and now south central like i grew up in the same hood like my whole life i was born and raised there and i didn't know it was what it was until I left and I was like oh people don't like going over there like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh the, the whole world is not oh, like dangerous this? what yeah, yeah. <laughs> right like you just don't realize it like when did you start to really process what was happening around yeah. you I mean I don't think I really did honestly till like my teens um mm. I just noticed the differences because I've always been an observer I've always been like really curious yeah. about people cultures you know it's just kind of how I was I, I am so I noticed it, but I'd never kind of put two and two together, so to speak, like until I was probably my teens. And I was just like, wait, what's going on? Like by then, um, you know, I was being raised by my stepdad and I had and I already knew that like my mom wasn't with my biological father. And I had a lot of questions about that growing up. I was just like, who's my biological father? Because mainly because my family like wouldn't talk about anything they wouldn't talk about anything oh, they don't <laughs> they don't talk about anything that's why you had to write a whole book you had all no. those years of trauma that you're just like <laughs> exactly. somebody talk to me <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's why i have a podcast to let it all out too though so yes. i get you <laughs> yes me and my sister have this joke about like our tias and my mom always saying the same thing over and over again and we're just like why are you guys talking about the same 
freaking topic all the time. Always. Or in the same details. And I'm like, oh, es que no quieren hablar de las cosas reales que les están pasando, you know? Right, like, right. They don't want to talk. They don't want to go there. <laughs> and I think, honestly, it took me a minute to understand that about my family. Like, for a long time, I felt like I had, especially when I was in, in college and I started to piece so many things together, I was, there was a lot of, like, resentment, you know, mm-hmm. sentimiento with, like, why weren't they there when I needed them? Or like, why didn't we talk about this? Like, there was so much trauma that we all went through and we never had a space to talk about it. And then it it took a few years after that when I started living with my parents in my mid-20s, I was like, oh, sad. I'm learning so <laughs> much about them. And, and really looking at my parents is humans. Like, mm. not as these superheroes que no hacen nada de mal in my head. Like, they're just human beings that did the best they could with the tools that they had. And for me, it just took a lot of healing with them of like, they just didn't know how to create that space because no one created it for them. And so right. I can't blame them. And life was already so hard. Like, I'm sure they didn't want to talk about it again. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's for me, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's almost for me a privilege to be able to be vulnerable and talk about the things that you know, the adversities that we got, we went through because my parents didn't have the luxury to sit back and like talk about these things and heal from them because they were just trying to survive. Right. Yeah, no, totally. I have a chapter on, you know, a chapter section where I talk about their sacrifice in coming into a different land, you know, like just going into a different place, physical space has allowed me to be able to go into different professional emotional psychological spaces like if they hadn't made that move Mm. i couldn't have made those moves you know and so i'm super grateful for my family as much as i i know there's like you know we're not perfect and there's like a lot of things that we're still working through they're for the most part they've been they've been very sacrificial you know and that's something that as a mom now i think about it i'm just like man would i really sacrifice like you know my whole Mm. like just um where I feel at home to give my kids a better life, like to like leave that behind, yeah. leave my friends behind. And it was, I, I think about that and I'm like, that's a, that was a really hard choice. Even if they minimize it or even if they don't realize that that, that was a hard choice, it was, it was a mm-hmm. really hard choice. And um, yeah, absolutely. I feel like for me, what has really helped is having a lot of boundaries. So like in my late teens to my early twenties, I just had to develop a lot of boundaries with my immediate family, you know, especially my parents around like how I wanted to be talked to, how I wanted to interact with them, you know, and, and all of that. And it was hard, you know, I was, it was really difficult. And that's part of what like I, I am doing with my book. It's like, this is the book I wish I had when I was going through all this, you know, that I wish someone would have told me <laughs> like, hey, it gets better and this is how it's going to be better. Or like, hey, when you're in this, this situation, it's like, maybe think about this way, like reframing, you know, I think a lot of times I needed that perspective. Yeah. But of course, you know, a lot of that comes with more experience, like you said, or like just growing up. We yeah. can't force that process, but we can also have a coach sheet for it. So right. I'm like... Let's give our hands some code sheets because yeah, <laughs> there's so much healing that needs to happen. <laughs> so much you need to talk about. I just saw a TikTok the other day that I sent to my brother and it was like this sister talking to her brother. She's like, we need therapy. And he was like, a lot of it. 
<laughs> and we just start cracking like, up us. because <laughs> uh, literally us. And I want to go deeper into your book. So it's called Chingona, owning your badass for owning your inner badass for healing and justice. And you do a lot of things. Like I feel like you're being real humble right now, but you do a lot of things. You're a professor at USC. You're an author. You're a podcast host. O sea, lo haces todo. I I want to hear about what made you, what made Alma sit down and start writing this book? I mean, I know you mentioned the trauma, but like, what was that yeah. like belief, like that burning belief in you of like, I need to sit down and start writing this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I'm not going to lie, it was, a lot of it was very spiritual for me. Mm. Um, I just kind of, you know, at a time when I was very much identifying as Christian and like as a, you know, someone of faith. I just felt like I had this calling to write this book. And so it started out that way, but it didn't end up, you know, there was a lot that that also happened during that time. It wasn't just that. I think what also helped was for me writing a book was the stories that I would tell people, including therapists, like I would tell them about my life and, you know, like just going through my own healing, you know, um, and people being like, yo, you shouldn't write a book. <laughs> like, they're just, yeah. And when your therapists, like not just one, a few <laughs> therapists tell you that, you're just like, okay, all right, uh, I'm receiving this world, I'm right. receiving this universe, what's this about? Like, what right. do I have to say it's about this? It's the good or, omens, it's the good omens. It is, it is, it is. And so I had a therapist who's now become a mentor of mine, Carlos. He basically was like, yeah, you should write a book. And basically, like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I will pay you to write a book. And I was like, what? I could get paid to write a book? Right. And then I talked to my partner, and then he was like, no, no, no. You you don't have to be self-published. Like, you, we are going to sell this book, blah, blah, blah. So I had a lot of resources, a lot of people supporting me, a lot of people encouraging me. And honestly, if I didn't have that, I probably would have just kept sitting with the idea that, like, yeah, I need to write a book one day, you know? Right. But they really made that happen. And a lot of it is, it is, it is resources. It is people stepping up. I ended up getting a book deal instead, you know, so no one had to like pay out of their own pockets to like get, um, oh, wow. to get this book out into the world. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, so it was, it was good, but I also was, yeah, it was, it was definitely a very grueling process in many ways and a very healing process. And now even looking back, I feel like, man, I'm still learning from this experience. Like, mm. I can't believe like, you know. As I was going through the writing process, I was checking in regularly with my mentor and, um, you know, just kind of breaking down, just, you know, processing the things that I was saying that were really hard to process. And then coming out of that and being like, okay, how do I now tell a story about this to folks so that um, I could do something like generative, like, you know, help others kind of understand what they're going to going through too. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it's been it's been kind of the, that gift that gives on giving because even like a few days ago I was thinking like man, like I don't know that I would just be okay with being who I am and having this like contentment about who I am without having to feel like I'm always having to strive or always having to do the next thing like mm. if I wouldn't have gone through that oh, process of writing it and accepting it. <laughs> myself, you know? Yeah, there's like so much self-acceptance that happens with just processing too. Mm. We don't talk about the good things that happen after the Whole like depressed. Oh my god! Well, I, <laughs> I want to talk about that though because writing a book and you're talking about trauma and all these things that you know you're talking to therapists. It's a really vulnerable place to put your story out on paper. 
I mean, yes. I can't even imagine. It's it's vulnerable to be in this space and talk about stories. Like I can't imagine having a book and like having it on paper. What was like, what were the hardest parts for you to write about? And can you share one of them with us now? Ooh, yes. Um, I think one of the hardest part for me to write about was to recast the men in my life and the, you know, both my father figures, my spiritual father figure, um, my, you know, uh, people that I had um, been partners with to recast their role in a different light. I think for a very long time, I had been stuck in like just hating kind of the masculine energy in general and yeah. like hating parts of even me that have that energy and just being like, why? Why is that a thing? And why can't I just embrace it? It's part of just the, you know, just the world and part of the way that, you know, there's like so much positive that can that can also be seen through this. So for example, like I, you know, I sometimes talk about um, God as a woman or just being having that feminine energy of like God or the universe. And and I think because of the padres that I grew, that's the other thing. I also had like, you know, the padres and all that, right? Like patriarchal, like right. colonial vibes <laughs> that come with like Catholicism and like Christianity. And so I wrote this like super vulnerable section just about my rethinking like their role in my life and like my accepting sort of the way that I have been harmed, but also the ways that I could find healing in these relationships. Um, so I would have to like look for it because I don't know exactly where it is. But um, yeah, I can totally share something too. This episode of Hello Latino is brought to you by McDonald's. Buy one, get one for $1 deal. Y para los que solamente hablan español, para que sepan, este episodio está presentado por la oferta Compra Uno y Llévate Otro por Un Dólar. It's always weird to me when the person you're eating with orders the exact same thing as you at McDonald's. O sea, if I'm getting a Big Mac, don't get a Big Mac. Diversify, sé creativo, be creative, and throw some respect on your order. Stop by McDonald's today and enjoy two favoritas for only $6. Y'all can also order a quarter pounder, 10-piece McNuggets, or a Big Mac. Y recordate que tenés que dibujar tu propio camino. Don't be ordering the same thing as your homie. Visit a McDonald's today y disfruta. Yeah, that's it's that's vulnerable. And I'll tell you as a as a girl who grew up with four brothers and with my dad, they're all and two of them are Virgos, so you you never know that energy. Um, and <laughs> now my boyfriend's I, a Virgo, I and I'm just like, um, can't get away from them. But I I grew up with brothers who. I think for me, gave me a lot of that masculine energy. Like I would cry, like now I now I cry all the time because I'm like, they made me hold back my tears for so long. <laughs> yes. um, and I'm like, there's a Cardi B um, video where she's like, I'm a sensitive ass gangster. And I say that all the time. <laughs> but my brothers, yeah. they, they anytime I would cry, they'd be like, stop crying, like be tough. Like you're tough, like stop crying. And I heard that my whole life. Like there's, a, there's that movie with uh, Adam Sandler, I forget what it's called, but when she's like, una lagrima namas, like, don't, don't be crying. <laughs> like, I felt like that was a lot of my life. Like I had so many feelings and I thought I was, I felt like there was shame for having mm. so many feelings. And yes. again, I don't blame anyone in my family. I think they were just, again, like growing up in a rough area, they're like, you don't got time to be all sensitive. Like you got to toughen up. 
Nope. And keep on pushing. Right. And I feel like that's something that I'm learning now is like being okay with having a lot of feelings and like Mm. being able to let those tears out and finding healing through it. Because girl, I would cry and I'd be like, oh, this is so annoying. And I would just like, you know, (laughs) like shame my tears. I think again, it took took time to really like own it. So I feel that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I found something. I found a chapter that I talk about this. It's chapter seven, Vivir con Cicatrices. Mm, eh. See your scars as proof of healing. So, you know, we often see scars as the hurt and the woundedness that happened there, but we don't see it as like literally like physically scars are our body's healing. It's and psychically, like, what does that mean? Like, can you know, like, when we are hurt in a psychic deep level, you know, like being made, being felt shame for like crying, like how do we then also start to see how that those scars as proof that there's healing to be done here, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. just all negative. And so, yeah, so that's one uh, of the things that I really like tackle in this chapter. Um, Mm. And so I talk about the trauma of sexual abuse in this chapter, which is super vulnerable. And I talk about just some of the, um, I'm trying to find like the right quote to share here too. (laughs) You know, some of the- Sorry, I'm putting Alma on the spot. (laughs) Oh no, it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Okay. So I start to like understand my sexual abuse as the trauma of like colonialism in a similar way. So, you Mm. know, I talk about how Often colonialism, so I'll just read it. So the trauma of sexual abuse and the trauma of colonialism often occurs in a particular moment at a specific time. The offense happens and the immediate trauma is great, but the trauma isn't once and done. The memory and the legacy of both abuse and settler colonialism live on. Dehumanization as as a process can have effects on all aspects of one's identity, on the whole structure the very foundation of our being. Once you've been dehumanized, it becomes a bit easier to dehumanize yourself and others. So, you know, I really wanted to theorize um, about, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I have, I teach for a living, uh, you know, at USC, I teach uh, on equity. So I, I, I often um, talk to mid-career, to executive level professionals who are trying to understand the effects of like racism and colonialism in our country in an organizational level. So like, how do they change their organization to start addressing some of these like wounds and healing spaces and just like reshaping their culture? Um, And I also, I also have, you know, a history of just because you need a PhD to become a professor. Um, I did get my own PhD uh, in educational policy and social context. Mm-hmm. I've always been about college access and persistence for BIPOC folks from low-income backgrounds. That's been mm-hmm. like my sort of through-line mission in my life and my professional career. And even this book, I feel like, is an extension of that. It's after years of seeing a lot of the real struggles that students have that are interpersonal and familial and that often doesn't get talked about in like research and like big papers and presentations. 
I felt like there was there was a disconnect there. You know, I think sometimes because the university space doesn't want to acknowledge oftentimes like faith spaces and also because uh, sometimes, you know, it's really hard to talk about feelings when you're in a PhD program. Mm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's all like very analytical, like let's just kind of, you know, all that, you know, that can make sense in a logical way is what we're going to talk about, not anything mm. about who we are as a whole people, both like emotional, you know, physical beings and the wellness that needs to happen there, you know? You just described that Virgo energy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Logic that, only. That. yeah and so because they're disconnected like from all of who they are themselves you know like institutionally i feel like the academy i realized that this is also harming students this is also harming people like you and i when we get to these spaces and now all of a sudden they're just like ha catholicism that's trash like basically like any faith or spiritual understandings right please like let's look at logic and let's look at science and those are the only ways that we're going to experience what's real and i'm just like bro first of all you just knocked off my grandma my great grandma and my mom off of my pedestal that i have about them Mm -hmm. as like la virgencitas incarnate okay so leave them alone (laughs) (laughs) like you know yeah yeah i'm like don't do that like that's part of my culture like yeah so we often talk about other parts though that are very problematic like racism and like other ways gender right like how those things play out but we'd never we don't really address in these institutional spaces i think um also faith and how faith forms and shapes who we are as as not as a whole Latino identity, but even as individuals, like maybe for me, this oh is a very God, important yeah. aspect of who I am. And so mm-hmm. maybe don't trash it in front of the <laughs> class, you know, oh and, my God. and also just like emotions and just navigating those and what that means for a lot of my first gen low income background students uh, in a college space. You know, what does it mean to really navigate your whole college career, prioritizing yourself and your self-care? which is yeah. not going to come from the university itself as like a way to go about this. <laughs> you know, it's, there's so much competition Mm-mm. and there's so much pressure. And so really, you know, I kind of started to see all of these different connections, theoretical and, pra- you know, in terms of my practice. And I wanted to connect it all and kind of give a different kind of, you know, uh, way to practice being a chingona in those spaces uh, that has to do with your own healing. And like, you could be smart, you could be, um, you can be um, analytical, but you could also be about self-care and you can also be a spiritual person if you'd like. I mean, I, there's no book for this. Like, uh, there's no Girl. rule book about, yes. you can't have social justice and be a faith-based person. Yes, you can. You're right. And this, is, right. and this is what this book is about. It's like, you define yourself. That's what about what a chingona is. It's owning your own inner badass for whatever you want. And for me, it was about healing and justice. They can coexist, you know? So I have anyway. so much, so many thoughts right now. <laughs> and I also talked but, a lot, so I get no, it. No, <laughs> no, that was, talk. no, it was girl. You were, I call it a spiritual download when you're just like on a vibe and you're just like <laughs> talking yeah. and, and I'm listening to you and like so much of what you're saying, I just feel so seen. And like, this is the first time I'm having a conversation like this where I'm like, Finally, somebody is in that space, especially a Latina, talking about some of these things. Like, it was really hard for me to be Christian in college. Like, even now, like, I have friends who are quote-unquote educated and are logic-only, and they they believe that God doesn't exist because there's not in a science book. And I'm just like, 
that erases so much of my culture, like you're saying, and mm -hmm. it's still kind of a hard topic to speak to certain people about. And I'm glad I have my best friends around me who are all, we're all educated women of color and we're still, you know, faith-based. But mm. I love that you're talking about this because I always felt like it was something I couldn't talk about in a lot of spaces within college. And it felt like some, like a big part of my identity was gone and I couldn't right. let that out. And you're going to get me emotional, but you talking about like how to own that space in or how to own your identity. Oh, girl, I'm getting emotional talking about it because <laughs> yes. I grew up like that, right? I grew up mm -hmm. talking about prayer, right? Like talking about God and going to church like three times a week. And really like, I feel like my faith was, was my foundation. And mm -hmm. I, I always say now, like God has always got my back because even in moments of poverty, when we had nothing, I mean, when we were living on the street, like me and my family, like we would pray every day. And mm. that's what kept us going in those moments. And I feel like to have that be so much of your life for like 18 years and then going to a space. I mean, I went to school away from home. So I went to seven hours up north and went to a school where I felt kind of alone and I didn't really have anyone to talk to about what it meant to be Christian or what it meant to me, what it meant to me to believe in God and how God has been showing up for me my whole life, right? Even yeah. in the hard moments. And so for you to say that you're doing that work and and even if you're Christian or not, anyone listening, like just creating space for people to just exist, to be their fullest selves, their fullest chingona, chingona. You know what I mean? Chinga, chingona? Is it chingona or chingono? Like there's not a guy. <laughs> Chingon. <for> it. <laughs> Chingon. Chingon. We don't use chingona, so I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just, it's it's really powerful. And so I just want to give you your flowers in that because you're making so many people feel seen. And on top uh, of that, thank you. I'm a first generation college student too. And that's where I learned what first generation meant. And now I move in every space and right? I'm like, oh, your girl's first gen everything. Like <laughs> first gen professional over here. <laughs> first gen corporate. I say first gen tech all the time. I'm like, I'm a first gen literally everything. And so yes. where, where did that come from? Is it because you experienced that in college being first generation? And like, mm -hmm. like where did that inspiration to create space for, for those communities come from? Yeah, I think a big part of it was my own experience. So yeah. when I, I have a like funny story of when I graduated high school, my parents were just like, Miha, we're so proud of you. Like, yes, you did it. Like, you're, you're, you know, like they, that was what they wanted for me. They wanted a high school diploma because they hadn't, they weren't able to finish a diploma in their own home country of Mexico mm -hmm. because they couldn't pay for it. You know, they were too poor to be able to afford that. Mm -hmm. um, and yet my father is one of like the smartest person, you know, um, people i know because he was Girl, always self aren't they all like aren't our families yes. <laughs> like i think about that all the time like i i am so my family's like offspring like you know what i mean like <laughs> yes. they they're the ones that are so creative resourceful they they instilled so many gems of knowledge in yes. me like they had equal potential they just didn't have the opportunity exactly yeah and yeah. so when i started moving through college and I was like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go to college. And they were just like, okay, you know, go for it. Like, we don't know what that is. <laughs> right. We don't know what that's going to mean. We just know like, you don't have a job for some reason, but that's okay, <laughs> I guess, if it's going to help you get a better job. <laughs> and right. then, you know, I kind of navigated that space with a lot of support, you know, from people like my counselor in high school, like just filling out like financial aid applications, right? And even when I was at the community college, being in the Puente program, I went to East LA, which is like right down the mm -hmm. street from where I live. And I got into a Puente program where I had a lot of like focused, like support, um, information, 
given to me about like the transfer process. And then I went on to UCLA. And then when I went to UCLA, it was like a complete culture shock for me. I was going to say, no big deal, UCLA. I was like, yes, from East LA to, I went from East LA to the West side of LA. And I was just like, wow, this could be a whole other world because this is so different over here. Paint the picture for us. Paint the picture of what that looks like. So East LA, again, the epicenter of like Chicano movement, lowriders, there's like graffiti everywhere. It's like just part of the art of the neighborhood at this point. Like you just got to embrace it. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, just having most of my peers be like 70% Latino, 30% Asian, because we're also like close to like an Asian community here. And, you know, just having like programs like Puente, you know, available for me, which is like Spanish, you know, it's obviously Mm -hmm. geared towards like my experience, right? And then moving to East to West LA, and literally seeing these like, white girls with these designer bags that I'm like, first of all, okay, Girl. that's how much I pay for rent. <laughs> like, uh, for, your, for your bag cost is how much my family got to pay for rent monthly. So dang, you know? Lord. So that was a very big culture shock for me, just seeing how much wealth there was. And that was actually the first time that I was like, oh, I see. I think I'm understanding what people mean by I'm low income. Like, I never saw myself as low income mm-hmm. until that until I had that because we were just resourceful. We just kind of made things happen, right? Like, we, we ne- right. I never felt like, oh, no, we're poor. Like, we, you know, um, somehow I wasn't very into things. So I think my parents kind of had a easy time kind of navigating, like, not making me feel like we were lacking anything, you know? Except, like, there was a few times where I did really want some Air Jordans or, like, specific shoes that they were like, we're not paying that much. For yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I was like, I think we're good, you know? Right. Yeah. And then I moved there, and it's, like, people driving Benzes and just, like, people my age driving, younger than me driving them. And just, mm. I was just so, like, what? I'm so confused. Like, it was just such a You're like, culture there's levels shock to this. <laughs> yeah. And that's when I first started getting interested in learning more about the path of you know as i went up more in my own prof- in my own academic career and like the math- my master's program in counseling and then uh going on to a phd i realized there was less and less people that looked like me mm. you know from from east la there was not as many people that transferred with me um you know i realized there was less people in the classes 300 lecture halls where people were latino descent like it was just less and less and i was like what is going on here you know like I know we out here, you know, like, why aren't we inside of these halls? And so that's what made me really interested in studying that and working with those with that population. Yeah, I love it. And again, it's the representation matters. And a girl, I can't even begin to imagine. I'm sure this is another cheese session of like you navigating academic world and academia. And like, like, I, I'm sure once you got to that PhD level, like it was like few and far between you saw Latinos in that mm-hmm. space. I mean, if we have a minute, like talk about how did you start to really own your identity, even in academia, which I think is a whole different beast, right? We could talk about tech corporate all day, but academia is a whole different world. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely hard. I think because, you know, through my own journey in higher ed, my, you know, I wasn't fully able to be myself, right? I had to like keep parts of either my faith or you know, different parts of me that always felt like didn't belong in those spaces. I think for, for, a, while, for a long time, I kind of lived ignoring those parts of me. 
And even through PhD school and counseling, you know, like not fully embracing myself and just feeling like, okay, I have to show up however they want me to show up so I could get through this and just get by and get approved, have the right signatures to have this done. Right. And so there, there was actually a lot of trauma that happened even in my PhD program, which is, um, you know, just being called names by professors, they're being... Um, just really inappropriate sayings, you know, like sexist sayings that they would have. And I was just like, what? Like, I thought that at this level, I would be learning how to how to be a much more compassionate, caring adult and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, learn all these theories and whether it be like in economics or like just like student success, whatever it was. And instead, I felt like, you know, I was seeing why we have the inequality that we do. Like, it's because it's it's recreated at every single level, including the PhD level. And so how do we like, you know, how, do, and for me, I, you know, I don't think this is for everyone. I think I created a boundary of like, I'm not here to fix the system. I'm here to get out of here with a degree and to use that for my people. So mm. y'all want to be toxic. I'm just going like show up when I need to <laughs> get out of here Lord. girl because that's a whole other like I did not have time for that I was a mom by then I was like the little energy that I have I'm going to spend on my family because that's what's important for me so mm. Mm. there's yeah there's a lot of stuff that's wrong with just higher ed and the ways that it can perpetuate a lot of the you know the inequity that already exists in our nation Alma is really the definition of a chingona. I'm so happy y'all tuned in. There's more casasito and cheese may come in your way, but first go to Amazon and look up chingona, owning your inner badass for healing and justice. Pre-order her book and enjoy all the amazing stories, some of which she shared today. See y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme. For all Hello Latino updates, follow Hello Latino Podcast. You can also follow me on my personal Instagram at ojasmo4as and find me on LinkedIn. My website has a lot more information if you're looking for it, oralisjasmine.com. Y con mucho amor, por mi andoreña. <laughs>